Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people with news, views and expert interviews. Hi, I'm Steve Randall and welcome to another of our special podcast episodes featuring the many people that Peter Finn, Pete the Builder and I spoke to at the Footprint Plus event at the start of June. We learned a lot and discovered some fascinating work that's going on to ensure that the construction industry is part of the greener, more sustainable world that we need as we drive towards carbon net zero. If you can't wait to catch up with all our guests from Footprint Plus, have a listen to our online radio stream where you can hear them all. Just visit constructive-voices.com, don't forget the dash, or ask Alexa to launch Constructive Voices. However you listen, with Constructive Voices, the conversation is building. Constructive Voices' media partner in Ireland and the United Kingdom is Construction Industry News. Since 2002, Construction Industry News has been focused on the very latest projects and developments within the UK and Ireland. My name's Adrienne Block. I've been working in the construction industry for 30 years. Um, really in three aspects. First of all, as a for local authorities, um, head of major projects at Croydon Council. That's back in the 1990s. And then I worked at John Lang Investments, Amy Ferrovial and Len Lease, running uh, the PFI division, looking at um, health and education, as well as housing and extra care. Uh, in 2010, I left the corporate world and set up Block Solutions Limited. Um, I work really in private equity, looking at innovation in the construction industry, but also putting together um, big tenders and consortium for government contracts and projects. So that could be from frameworks, looking at retrofit frameworks, housing frameworks, and looking at uh, larger scale frameworks for the Department of Education or the Department of Health. So I actually am sort of the glue that brings different people, the investor, the architect, the supply chain, uh, all together for each different type of framework or tender. Excellent stuff. It always takes a strong woman to bring all those type of things together, so well done. Um, so I just heard uh, you chaired a, a very a very good presentation there about um, some very large-scale construction. Um, would you like to develop on on that, what, what we just seen there? Yeah, and I think it's really um, great for me because having been uh, head of major projects at Croydon Council that long ago, it's really amazing to see the transformation that modular accommodation is bringing to a place like Croydon. Um, We've always known it's had great transport uh, infrastructure. Um, They always sort of quote how long it takes to get to London. I'd like to think how quick it is to get to Brighton. Um, And yeah, I mean, just being able to build things so quickly using modular systems that have now really evolved to be much more sustainable is very exciting because it's the only way we're actually going to reach that 300,000 target of new homes every year. So yeah, I'm all for it. I think we have to throw away the old prejudice around modular. Uh, things have moved on and they're moving on rapidly and this is going to be part of the solution, not necessarily the whole solution going forward. Yeah, I totally agree. Modular construction certainly has huge advantages um, and it's, a, it's, it's one of the only types of construction where you can actually properly record your carbon footprint. Um, and also, it's now being developed into you know, large scale as well as, as small scale, which is, which is, I think, where it needed to go to. Um, and I really do feel myself and 
um, from from hearing other people speaking here today as well that it certainly is a step in the right direction um, in terms of, of of the you know the aim for 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 carbon net zero. So. Um, what do you think is coming next? Um, you know, we, we certainly have made steps in the right direction. Um, maybe events like this will put momentum behind that. And where do you see it going next? Yeah, it's really interesting what you were just saying. And I think one of the other things about equality, and when you really look at ESG, is the factory environment is often much easier for women um, to participate in. So I think it's going to be a real game changer in terms of getting women in construction, which we've been trying to do for years and years. Uh, so I think that's probably one of the next steps. And that will creep up on us by default, uh, where people can, particularly if there's factories near their homes and they can work more of a shift pattern that's going to be great um, also developing more skills um, different types of skills as well um, it's going to be interesting I think the next big change really though is going to be around the lifting equipment the plant and the transportation and making sure that investment in those green solutions because that's going to really sort of shift the dial further on the sustainability the EPC the BRIAM assessments um, so I think there's going to be step change in those that direction. Um, and I think, as I said there, the hybrid, the mix and match between modular and traditional is going to happen more and more. I think the thing to look forward to, and really uh, perhaps next year at this conference we can come back to this, will be how easy some of those airtight modules are going to be for plant preventative maintenance. And maybe it would be really good to hear about people who actually, from some of the people, the residents themselves, about how they're finding and whether they see any differences in living in a modular environment versus traditional. So I think that's going to be actual testimonials from occupiers will be really interesting. Brilliant stuff. Well, as a father of three daughters, it's great to hear that uh, you know there is a future in construction for for you know women in construction, and I'm an absolute. Uh, adversary of that I really do think that that's, that's you know something that has to happen because we don't have the manpower we, we simply don't we need more bodies in, in construction and a woman's perspective is always something that I, I highly respect and I think you know it's something that really needs to be brought into construction more um, I really I also agree with a, with a lot of the other stuff that you said there as well in terms of where we are going so final question um, are we going in the right direction and are we going fast enough well, I think we are going in the right direction. I think the fact that we now can potentially, we're talking about green mortgages that might be very good from the MMC point of view. I think we need to see those being much more accessible and actually we need to link green credentials with uh, cheaper products. We really need to incentivize the consumer. Uh, I think when the realisation on EPC rating, as I said, for the buy-to-let market is going to sink in, people are going to think very hard about uh, the green credentials of any investments they make on a personal level. I think, are we going fast enough? Probably not, but where I'd like to see, there's many different forms of modular construction, as you know, and you alluded to yourself. And I think we really need to be thinking about repurposing environments in the high street um, sometimes you can put modulars in big spaces like this you know you can be can be much more creative rooftop developments as well so i think planners do need to learn as well as 
uh, at the same pace of what can be done. Even if things are potentially there for five or ten years, they can be done very quickly and can make a big difference, particularly around homelessness, um, things like extra care that I work in, nursing care, where we've got a huge demand and where we also need to improve the estate and stock that we have to bring it up to standard. Modular, for example, can be used. You can build a uh, care home very quickly next door to a site. Then you can decant residents you know, into an environment where the nursing and the care can be done and then recant them back in when some of those other retrofit improvements have been done. So I think uh, uh, Moja has many, many uses, whether it's long-term or short-term. And if it's short-term, then they can be repurposed elsewhere around the country. So again, they're very sustainable. So I think we need to think much broader, more broadly. And I think we did see that in the COVID pandemics in, 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 in China itself, where we saw modular hospitals going up very quickly. And, uh, you know, we haven't got enough ward space. Um, so I think as a country, we need to really embrace it and think about it much more strategically. From the Footprint Plus event in Brighton, UK, to the global construction industry. This is Constructive Voices. My name's David Lewis. I'm the Operations and Finance Director uh, for Ironstone Asset Management. It's the investment advisor to Life Science REIT PLC, uh, which is an entity that was listed on the stock market in November last year. Uh, And we are creating space for science. So the concept is that... Um, there is a lack of suitable um, office stroke lab space in, in, in the UK. We are specifically focused on what we call the Golden Triangle, which is between London, Cambridge and Oxford. Um, and obviously that is where the centre of the research into that particular industry is based. And so we're specifically focused on there because we see what's called a genius loci in terms of hospitals and the universities and specifically um, where, that, where that knowledge is based and where companies are, again, looking for um, space to grow, essentially. And, and this is huge, isn't it? This area, particularly life sciences, is, is, just, is growing in an exponential way. Yeah. Um, and I suppose we're taking more notice of it as consumers because of what's happened in the last few years. Everyone wants to know, you know, how life sciences is going to make sure that we live for, uh, you know, as long as we can potentially live. That's exactly right. Uh, and there is certainly, a, a, as I say, a lack of space associated with this type of uh, business Uh, and and we are trying to again identify uh, particular um, locations uh, in these areas uh, particular um, uh, particular science parks where we feel that we we can develop the space they need because it is specialist that's the thing about it Um, we must have been we must have been offered every single empty Debenhams department store uh, to say look life science yes it's all new and exciting but um, the space needs to be um, looked at specifically to try and ensure that it can actually meet the requirements of our occupiers that's absolutely key so and is that because in life sciences particularly there's kind of an ecosystem that 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 needs to exist so there need to be certain things around that space it's it's more it's more there is an element of that um particularly because again they like the campus environment so companies that want to work together there's that aspect of it all it's also the buildings themselves so they also need to Efficient room for ventilation, so Florida heat hit, uh, ceiling heights are very key. Um, and as we are here at, at Footprint Plus, that sustainability aspect is also quite important to our clients as well in terms of 
trying to ensure that they are occupying a building that they, they believe is um, of the right standard that, uh, that meets the, their own sustainability and, and ESG criteria. And as a real estate investment trust, I mean, how does that work for you in terms of ensuring that you're meeting their sustainability criteria that is so important, while also being not exactly able to pick you know, yeah. from anywhere? You, you've, you've got some restraints on you there. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, our investors in particular are very keen, and that is becoming more and more more apparent, very keen on what our sustainability criteria is. There's going to be some new reporting standards that are coming out next year that we're going to have to meet. Um, they are very keen to understand the buildings that we've invested in. So we've we've uh, we've managed to uh, we only listed in November, but we've managed to secure um, six assets uh, since then. Um, and they're very keen to understand what our EPC ratings are, and then also what potentially we're going to do to get them up to meet the new standards that are coming coming in. So, again, part of that is saying to um, both our investors and our occupiers that we intend to spend a certain amount of uh, money on, again, improving them. So that can be simple things that is just like putting PV panels on, on roofs, EV charging points, getting the insulation up to up to scratch. So there's some there's some quick wins that we can that we can achieve relatively quickly. But overall we need to look at the the, the buildings in, in in its entirety and, 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 and ensure that we continue to meet I, I say the, the standards but also our, our occupiers' requirements. And I mean, this is obviously you're in the life sciences area, but this is going to be something that's replicated across the industry and and other REITs will be facing similar uh, challenges to make sure that that they're doing what their investors and consumers and their tenants all want. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think uh, it's interesting uh, this morning's um, discussion um, that we had and uh, people, one of the the initial questions were how how seriously are people taking it? And I think I was one of the few people saying, well, my hand saying very seriously seriously most of the people i think as myself are only not not just realizing it but actually as i say it's becoming more and more apparent that um, that pressure is is coming from lots of different angles um across the whole industry and um again whether it's it's one of these things where it's everyone going to just get to that point and they're doing it for the purposes just because they've got to meet the standards or how seriously they're taking it and we only have uh, eight people on our team but one of the first people we actually hired uh, was a sustainability director so that's how important we we treat it um Again, it will take us time because we've only just acquired these uh, these assets to take time to get familiar with the buildings. Um, and again, my, my, my purpose for being here is to sort of learn from everybody else and what they're doing in the industry as well. Uh, to sort of get where, where, where's, where's the needle at? Where, 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 how, how seriously is everyone taking it? And as I say, at the moment, I get a sense that everyone's here. It's like, okay, so a lot of it at the moment is how are we going to do it? You know, um, a lot of it's how are we going to measure it? So I think no, no one has the sort of the absolute right answer yet. So I think it is going to be bit by bit, horse for courses. And ultimately, like we sort of said, in, in six or seven years' time, yeah, there will all be this standard, and that, but that will become the baseline. It, 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 won't, it, it, won't be, it won't be good enough there. That will just be the pure baseline. And then it will be, okay, how, what is everybody else doing to try and beat, every, beat everybody? It will become one of those things where it's like, oh, I'm doing this, you're doing that. Yeah, and it will become, it, it become, shall we say, the standard as opposed to the moment where 
everyone's just doing that a little bit here and there. It's what I sense anyway. Yeah, no, I, I think that's the sense I've got from, from talking to people here today. You know, it's, yeah. it's a learning curve, isn't it? And yeah. everyone's trying to see where they fit into yeah. this this new way of doing things that everybody knows they're going to have to do, but yeah, it's kind yeah. of how are we going to do it? And then, as you say, there will come that point where it's yeah. it's sent back to business as usual, where where people want to do it better than the competition, and uh, you know, and, and and so it will go on. I mean, this event obviously it's the, the first one that there's been yeah. uh, a footprint plus. It's a fantastic event, very well attended. Yeah. Uh, you know, huge names involved, smaller names involved. Yeah. Everybody looking to find out what they can do to to move towards this more sustainable future. I mean, how important was it for you to be here? Um, well, I know one of the organisers, so <laughs> so you had to be, otherwise you would have been in big trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, 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 they wouldn't buy me dinner again. No, um, no. For, for me, the, the importance was um, that we needed to have a presence here. Um, again, as a, as, a, as a essentially a relatively new company, we're, we're out and about trying to get put our name out in the industry and let, let people know that this is what we're doing we're the only specialist REIT investing in this particular sector um, there are other companies that are are doing similar things uh, but they're not necessarily open to um, uh, investment by, by uh, by uh, other companies that want some exposure to this particular sector, or investors want exposure to this sector. So um, in that regard, it's about just ensuring that we can really learn again, you know, and, and understand what, what else is out there. And um, I'll certainly be going back to the office with a whole bunch of different ideas um, and, and thoughts to, uh, to sort of discuss with our asset management team and our sustainability director. Brilliant. And where can people find out more about you and, and what you do? Uh, so our, our website is just www.lifesciencereap.com. Uh, pretty easy, basically. Um, and, yep, the whole team are there. Um, you can basically see what assets we've acquired. Uh, EPC ratings are on there. Um, and you can see what else we're going to be doing. This is Constructive Voices. Hi, I'm Rory Bergen. I'm an architect and a sustainability consultant. And I run a team within HTA Design um, we're a multidisciplinary practice, um, and I specialize in sustainable design, um, life cycle assessment, energy calculations, uh, carbon footprinting, um, daylight and sunlight, all of those sustainability issues. Great stuff. And um, I heard your, your talk there earlier. So modular construction was a big part of that. And uh, would you like to, to discuss that and the role that modular construction has to play in the future of construction? Because... Um, I, I find at this moment we're in a transition from traditional construction into new methods of construction, new types of construction, and obviously much more sustainable and uh, more eco-friendly uh, ways of constructing. Yeah, I think that um, you know, we're lucky um, that we have a, a, a big portfolio now of completed projects that were built using this, this methodology. Um, and we were here today to talk about a piece of research that we've done on two recently completed buildings, um, research that was done with Cambridge and Napier universities, um, and which shows that uh, the volumetric construction is about 40 to 45, 50% less, en less energy uh, intensive than traditional construction. Um, so that's really good news on top of all the other benefits. So generally we find off-site construction uh, using your know, full volumetric modular to be about 50% quicker. Um, it's uh, cleaner, it's quieter, it involves less traffic on the site, it's safer. 
I don't believe in 10 or 12 buildings now we've had a single serious accident on site or in the factory. Um, so, you know, as designers, it's, it's great to see this kind of um, construction methodology being available to people. Um, we think it's mature. You know, we think it's technically um, safe and, and ready for, for wider adoption. Absolutely. So good to hear that projects are finished. Um, I was speaking to Nick earlier on as well from Toy Construction. I know that he's involved or was involved in that project with you as well. And to hear that um, to, to hear the, the, the projects are finished and the research has been done on the finished product is great to hear because then that research can be an evidence, I suppose is the best way to put it, can be used going forward um, and, and make sure that the push towards that type of construction is, is valid and, and is, is, is more accepted. Um, you've listed off like so many positive reasons why uh, modular construction is, is, is the way forward. Um, for me, it, it also will help resolve one of the biggest issues that we have, which is uh, a labor force or manpower or, you know, generally people available to do to do the work. Um, and I think that, that could help this going forward. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, I think that, um, and, and again, there's probably not enough research on this, but so construction companies tell us that labor force on sites are about 40% productive. So they spend about 40% of their time actually working, doing stuff. Um, what they're doing for the rest of the time, I'm not going to comment on. Um, but factory workers generally are about 80% productive because they're in a managed environment. Their tools are beside them. Um, you know, the work kind of comes to them. They don't need to go to the work. They don't spend their mornings driving around the M25, which is what happens in London. Um, Many of the workers, we understand, have bought houses near the factory. You know, they started out as traditional construction workers and then moved to the factory and then bought houses nearby. A lot of them cycle to work. So the kind of benefits for them are, are, are immense, um, as well as the fact that we think that um, this ends up reducing road trips by about 80%. So... What you have in a finished module is you have the painting is done, the plumbing is done, the carpet is there. In student accommodation, the bed is in the room as well. You know, the wash basin is in, the tiles are on the wall, etc., etc. So all that work, all that effort happens in the factory. So all those people don't have to come to site. So we have um, extraordinarily few people on site, like 20, 30 people building big, big projects. Um, but there's 200 of them in the factory. So you, would, you, could, you could easily argue so that those 200 are probably replacing 400 traditional workers and then replacing thousands of trips every day um, to, to building sites that, that aren't needed anymore. So, yes, I think it's definitely the future. Um, I think there's still a long way to go. We're still, you know, there's not much automation going on yet. Um, and automation is difficult because buildings are still site specific. They're still each building is still a bit different. Um, so you know we probably need more clever, more clever robots and more clever other systems. But already we can see huge benefits to the workforce in moving into factories. Excellent stuff. And I uh, would gather from the positivity that I'm hearing from yourself that your designs going forward will 
be mainly guided towards this type of construction? Um, so what happens is we we work a lot with Titan Vision and we've we've designed and built nearly a dozen projects with them by now, and we're working with other manufacturers as well. But there's still a, a proportion of our workload where the client doesn't know how they want to build it. Um, so you know we're still in a situation where some projects are being being done this way, and we have a we have a reputation both here in the UK and in, and internationally for doing this type of work. Um, but I would say it's probably half our workload. Yeah, we'd be happy if it was all of our workload because our buildings get built about twice as quickly um, as they do in traditional contracting. And, uh, you know, as I said in the conference, we often, <laughs> we often end up in, let's say, minor disputes with contractors when we finish traditional contracting projects. Um, that has never happened on a manufactured project. And it's partly because... You work together very closely. It's a very collaborative process. And when you finish the building, um, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a brilliant result for everybody. And everybody goes away happy. Uh, have you found the networking and have you found meeting and collaborating with so many people with the same vision um, to be a positive experience? And I know certainly I am, am gaining an awful lot of positivity about the, 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 the end result of, of trying to get to the net carbon zero. Um, would you share that that opinion? I think we we need to share knowledge and expertise. Um, we need to be collaborative in the industry, and you know opportunities like this where we can get together, share knowledge, share ideas, um, you know, are beneficial, hugely beneficial. Um, this conference is quite close to London, so it's easy for the London market to get here. Brighton's a lovely venue, um, so yeah, uh, I, I hope this conference is a success and I, I hope it's um, back next year. Constructive Voices live at Footprint Plus. Hi, I'm Justin Guest. I um, have spent about the last 20, 25 years working in climate change and carbon trading. Um, started in uh, in the late 90s right after the Kyoto Protocol was initially signed and started working around technical consulting and helping kind of develop and structure carbon uh, offsetting projects uh, often in the developing world um, helping work out how do you quantify how do you calculate carbon emission reductions and, and, and how do you what's the process that you step through really by uh, you know, to actually formalize getting that carbon credit yeah, I mean, the, the whole concept of, of carbon offsetting, I think, is, is, is really interesting because we talk a lot. I mean, it's become sort of part of our everyday language, talking about net zero. And we've, we almost forget that that net thing reflects that we're not going to get to a situation where no carbon emissions happen anywhere. You know, that that is going to happen. But offsetting that by finding ways that that that, uh, that we can have developments or do other things, other activities that will offset the carbon that's used elsewhere is the way to get net zero. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's, it's really important, though, to remember that y your starting point has to be to reduce your own emissions first. And, and offsetting is always the last tool that you go to. Um, I think there's... Um, there's a lot of concern, particularly among NGOs, that, that, that the lazy route to take is you go straight to offsetting. And, and there's a lot of challenge around that, and quite rightly so. But offsetting is absolutely a legitimate strategy when it's done right. And I think we, maybe one of the things we might touch on here is, you know, what does done right actually mean? Because credibility around offsetting is really important. You can't just kind of reduce a ton of emissions and then claim you've reduced it and then sell that and monetize it and then, you know, expect to have any credibility around it. I think, And, and there have been a lot of um, instances, uh, some 
very interesting high-profile examples recently um, in financial markets of people uh, trading and selling carbon credits, often through boiler room scams to pensioners and pensioners investing tens of thousands of pounds in things they just don't understand and realising there's nothing behind them of any real value. And I think the credibility is, is one of the probably one of the key things around offsets that you really need to think very hard about when, you, you know, when you're developing an offsetting strategy. Yeah, I mean, you touched on the financial markets thing, and I mean, it, you know, the, the financial markets will find a market somewhere in anything that the, 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 it comes across, and obviously the carbon credit market is, is a growing market. Um, but also, there's increasing scrutiny of not just the financial markets and the way that those companies are, are operating, you know, the, the, the term greenwashing is thrown around a lot um, in, in these sort of situations, and as you say, just just trading your carbon credits is, is not the right way to go. It needs to be about looking at how you can actively reduce your carbon and to, to the extent that maybe you can't, you then look at genuine product uh, projects where you can uh, offset that carbon emission. Yeah, that's right. And I think there's a, there's a process you have to step through, uh, really, that, 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 that has you trying to understand what your emissions profile is to start with. You really have to understand where do your emissions come from. Are they embodied emissions in, in the buildings that you're producing? Is it through the use of a building or a particular item? Or is it, as they, you know, we talk about scope one, scope two, scope three. So scope one are the emissions that you can control, that, that you are um, effectively burning a, you know, gas in a boiler for heating or, 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 or um, hot water etc um, scope two uh, you know electricity from from a grid where effectively those emissions have been created somewhere else but you're you're the primary cause of the demand for that scope three obviously you know thinking about your you know if you're a um, ikea you know scope three would be very much the people who drive to your stores burning fuel in their cars you know so thinking about what can you take responsibility for uh, and understanding what can you then, once you know what your emissions profile is, what are the technical options for reducing those emissions? Can you, if you're a primary developer, we're here at a buildings and, uh, uh, and construction uh, type conference, uh, can you build better buildings that will allow you to have a lower emissions profile as you go forward? Can you use low carbon cement and steel in your buildings? Um, and if you can't, if those technical options are not available to you, well, that's when you then fall back and say, well, OK, I can reduce X by doing these kind of measures, but actually I've still got this gap. And I've got this gap to get to in the next five or ten years. How am I going to do that? And that's potentially where offsetting comes in. And, and you mentioned developing nations. I mean, is it the case that a company in uh, a developed country um, that, that has uh, managed to offset um, its emissions that, that that can then benefit developing countries well the it, that's a very good question actually because originally um the, 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 the one of the largest kind of carbon credit producing standards should we say was the clean development mechanism under the kyoto protocol which ran you know between kind of 2008 and 2012 and these um, clean development mechanism projects, CDM projects as they're known, were one of the reasons why they were actually accepted in the, that international framework in the first place when the Kyoto Protocol was signed was very much because they were seen as a method of moving both capital, cash, money and technology to the developing south. And arguably you can look at how successful that has actually been. And you know, carbon credits are not the only thing that drive development, of course. But, you know, if you look at China, for example, when, when I first started working in carbon credits in, in the late 90s, 
there were like two wind farms in China. Uh, and now there are 2,000. You know, they're arguably the world's biggest wind, wind producer. So, you know, carbon crediting has been part of that success. Not all of it, but there are also technologies where carbon credits make such a material difference that you just simply wouldn't do them otherwise. So a very good example uh, of that are some industrial projects that they don't rank very high on the social scale but they're absolutely what we call additional. You just wouldn't have done this without carbon crediting. So the, the, the replacement gases for ozone-depleting substances, so the, the gases called HFC, um, uh, hydrofluorocarbons, um, displace chlorofluorocarbons, which are the ozone-depleting gases. But as part of that production of HFC, you have byproducts that are of no value and at the moment are often vented to atmosphere. They have a tremendous global warming impact. I mean, tens of thousands of times, you know, what one ton of carbon dioxide will do. And there are industrial processes to capture that and, and destroy that gas. Um, and they are actually very, you know, very much those kind of additional kind of activities that, that you want to see. That would not have happened without a carbon crediting regime. The problem with them that a lot of people would see, especially the NGOs, is they don't have that social kind of impact that a lot of you know if you're a small-scale cook stove developer for example in Africa that that would bring so you've got challenges in looking at the different kinds of credits as well uh, you know when you're looking at an offset strategy as to what, what kind of credit do you want do you want do you mind where it comes from do you just want cheap carbon credits and that maybe you go to an HS23 uh, project or you go to a landfill gas project in Southeast Asia or a wind farm in China or do you want really high social attributes to your projects so they that, that <coughs> excuse me in that instance you would go to you know very high quality cookstove projects in Africa where they have really close social you know human kind of benefits that you can tangibly touch and see and, and how good is the measurement of this? Because that's, you know, do we have a standardization now across the world or are we moving towards that where we can be absolutely sure what the carbon emissions are and, and what the offsetting is, is providing in return? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and that, that's around confidence again. That's around the standards that we use, <coughs> excuse me, uh, and the processes that we use to quantify emission reductions. Um, the clean development mechanism was really interesting when it developed in the early 2000s because there were, there were no methodologies. There were no kind of cookbook recipes for developing a carbon project. Those emerged over time and the CDM did a lot of good in terms of putting a lot of those methodologies up there. Some quite rigorous and robust methodologies. Um, you know, defining one of the biggest problems you've got really, separate it out into two separate areas. You've got, you've got additionality which is the concept of would this have happened in the first place and then you've got the quantification process you know the, the validation and the verification and, and and what you're asking about specifically is, is is that latter bit but that first bit is is probably one of the big bits that we we have to wrestle with around credibility it gets very hard to notionally say if I'm developing a wind farm whether the carbon credits are the tipping point that made it financially viable. We touched on the HSC 23 example as being something that was absolutely additional. That would not have happened without carbon credits. Simply wouldn't have been any reason for anybody to do it. It's a cost. There's no law. There's no regulation. Why would I do it? Additionality in that case is really transparent. You look at a wind farm now in China where you've got 2,000 of them and it's fairly standard. Is the next Chinese wind farm that you're going to build additional from a carbon trading perspective? And so you've got to test that quite rigorously. And I think some of those tools still need a bit of work. 
I think there are still really good examples that are really easy to point to and go, those are additional. They just are. You know, you can demonstrate it and, and you can almost feel it in a way. And there are others where it would be challenged. So I think there's definitely work to be done around that. On the quantification side, actually measuring your emission reduction, I think we've got some really good kind of processes and standards by which we all work to that are pretty transparent where external verifiers and validators can come in you know the groups that will do you know certification around building performance for example you know TUV you know Debt Norse Veritas DMV those kind of groups that you would turn to for certification for all sorts of things around ISO you know all those kind of things they're doing that in carbon as well so I think we can we can be really comfortable around a lot of the the mitigation projects and the verification around quantification there it gets a bit more challenging around removals so the forestry projects that some of the people we were on that panel talking about uh, might might come up with so you know when you're planting trees or you're conserving an area of land there are some some really interesting questions still i think about the the, the way that you quantify emission reductions there i think we're getting there it's not quite 100% there in all cases, but I think we do have a good enough base to work from that in that instance you can have some kind of comfort that you, you, if you're buying a carbon credit from a, a credible buyer and a credible producer using a standard that's internationally recognised, which is really important, you can take some comfort that actually you've done it right and this is a real carbon credit. Brilliant. Well, I mean, you said we're getting there, and I think that's, that's kind of a, a, a big sort of takeaway from the footprint plus event that we are getting there you know it's a case of we we don't have all the solutions but there are a lot of people at this event who have part of the solution and when you start to piece those together uh the 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 puzzle becomes less of a of a challenge and you can start to see how we can uh, move towards the the net zero future that we're looking for yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, in 2000, when we first started developing carbon emission projects, there were no standards, there were no um, verifiers, there were no validators, there were no um, methodologies for quantification. It takes time to, to develop those processes and those skills and that knowledge. Um, and that's exactly the same kind of thing that you'll probably see with the whole net zero agenda. A lot of people today, are, you know, are confronted by this massive complex issue, which is net zero. How do I engage with that? And that's a real challenge, particularly because a lot of the guidance that's been developed quite rightly is focusing on larger businesses. So if you look at the, you know, the, the, the kind of um, the science-based targets initiative, which is, a, you know, an international uh, approach to setting a science-based target to net zero, it, it focuses on large businesses. And, and that's fine if you're a, you know, a BP of this world, but if you're a, you know, a small, you know, you're Haringey Borough Council, you know, I'm a small, medium-sized enterprise, how do I engage with that? And, I, and there isn't yet a process um, that is... I think recognised and easy to access for those groups to do that piece of work. So a lot of people are, you know, at this conference here, are, you know, I just had one conversation there with somebody saying, oh, I've got a lot of consultants trying to help me, but we're still feeling our way through this. How do we do this? Um, and a lot of learning is, is occurring. But what will happen over time is, you know, you break it down to small enough problems. You deal with every small problem as a small problem, not as the whole thing in its entirety you will slowly start to build that knowledge base and those kind of processes like the science-based targets initiative will start to evolve that will allow engagement from small and medium-sizing enterprises so again very much like carbon trading in the early 2000s you're at a point now where 
we're just starting to learn how do we set net zero targets. How do we do that in, in a critical, an incredible way that allows my business to still have a license to operate and to, to, to operate profitably over the next 20 years? And, and that will take a bit of time, but we will get there because we've done it before in other areas. We'll do it here as well. And there's a huge body of knowledge that's, that people are tapping into and adapting and taking and making their own in order to help that process move forward. Well, look, Justin, it's a, a fantastic topic. Really, really interesting to, to see the, the possibilities that carbon offsetting can bring. Where can people find out more about you and what you do? Uh, well, I don't do a lot of work around carbon these days. I used to do. I do a lot more around plastics these days. Um, but well, that's a, that's a whole different conversation <laughs> we could have. That, and, and that's one of the reasons why I started doing that is because it was an area that was very much underserved. And, we, we you know, my partner, my business partner and I, both have 20-year careers in, in carbon trading and, and climate. Um, but you can find me on LinkedIn, you know, Justin Guest. If you put in Justin Guest, you'll find me, or Lucy Mortimer's my business partner. But there are a whole group of other you know, people out there with, with the kind of skills and, 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 and uh, information and knowledge that you're looking for. And uh, you know, in, increasingly, they'll become a lot more apparent to you. They're the kind of service providers that you're already tapping into for, for the kind of advice that you're asking for around kind of building construction sustainability. From the Footprint Plus event in Brighton, UK, to the global construction industry. This is Constructive Voices. My name's Romy. I'm commercial director for Vestra here in the UK. Vestra is a Norwegian manufacturer of street furniture. Great stuff. I've seen your display uh, across there. Some really nice um, furniture you've got there. And in terms of the connection to, to sustainability, which is obviously uh, a lot of uh, well, the main reason why we're all here at Footprint Plus, can you give us the connection there, please? Yes, we manufacture furniture that's carbon neutral in terms of its production. Uh, we have very lengthy warranties to minimise resource use. And uh, we're aiming for carbon zero uh, by 2040 fully within the business um, so we saw Footprint Plus as being a great event to come along and showcase what we do uh, I think we'll win the prize for the most colourful stand because our furniture is extremely bright colourful uh, Scandinavian in, in aesthetic but the uh, sustainability aspect for us is probably more important than anything else Fair play to you and you're dead right your, your stand is extremely colourful there some very stylish stuff you've got going on there do you want to expand on that and, and let our listeners know kind of what your range is um, in terms of you know is it uh, do you do industrial residential you know give us the, the, the kind of scope of what, you, what your company does so our furniture is designed for life on the street essentially mostly it goes outdoors but we do find it's being specified more and more for interiors but it's designed and manufactured to cope with extremely uh, challenging conditions so we've tested it out in Norway in obviously some pretty challenging environments for about 75 years and uh, mostly it goes out on streets or university campuses um, those, those kinds of places where it's subject to abuse so it's really important that it's strong, durable puts up with normal everyday wear and tear uh, we manufacture a lot of seating, um, uh, cycle parking, planters, litter bins, those, those types of elements that you see on streets but probably walk past every day. Uh, when they're ours, you might not walk past so easily because they'll probably be bright yellow. But generally, it's the kind of furniture that you don't really miss until you realise it's not there because there's nowhere to sit, nowhere to put your rubbish, nowhere to secure your bike. Very good, very good. Um, so in terms of Footprint Plus itself here, it's obviously uh, a lot of people here together under one roof with very similar 
uh, way of thinking and um, obviously with the, the sustainability issue and uh, the, the climate challenge as one of the, their main focuses. What, what has it been like to meet so many people here with, with a very similar way of thinking and um, what have you gained from being here? I think uh, we wanted to be here. It's the first event, so we weren't really sure what to expect. But for us, we want to hear from clients and specifiers particularly about what they're looking for, what they need in in this space. And uh, in terms of production, we've linked nine of the UN SDGs into our business strategy. So we're working particularly on uh, an aspect which we call Vision Zero. So we now manufacture only furniture that's designed to last for life. Uh, we have fully circular production. We'll take furniture back, strip it down, restore it, send it back out. So for us, it's all about minimising our impact in absolutely everything we do, minimising the use of resources, um, extending very long warranties so that people will buy once and buy well. That's really our philosophy. And I think it seems that most of the people here understand that and hopefully some of them want to buy into that um, in, a, in a very meaningful way. So I think we're, we're talking about the theory, but also it's providing opportunities to talk to people about actually furnishing their sites with furniture that will you know, last forever and uh, try and lessen all of our impacts. Excellent stuff. I'm doing it in a stylish way as well, I have to say. Um, some really cool and funky um, designs you've got going on there as well. But but also, uh, I, the word I would say is they've got a bit of a timeless feel to them as well in terms of they, they will go through the different eras of fashion that come and go. Um, so I suppose just to, to finish up, um, it was very nice to talk to you. And do, do you think that we're going in the right direction when it comes to climate uh, change? And um, are we going to, to get to those targets that, that, that have been set um, in the future? I know it's a big question, but like, what's your, just your own general thoughts on it? I think we're some way off meeting those targets, genuinely. Um, I think some of us are working in the right way and at the right speed, but there's e- even we, I think, are quite aware ahead of most people, but there's still a long way to go. I just don't see the movement at the scale and pace that we need to see to hit some of these targets ac- across all, all of our sector. I think it's absolutely vital that we do, but uh, I think there are major issues to deal with in terms of procurement and involving the right parties at the right times. I think construction is still very much siloed, unfortunately, and uh, we really feel it's time to prove what we can do. So everybody talks about it a lot. You can hear theatres all around here talking about it a lot. Now is the time for action and walking the walk. So that's what we're trying to do in a, an extremely tiny way in this sector. But I think I think we have to start proving what's possible and doing it now. Stop talking about it. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, you know, what you're doing is not a, not a small thing for your company. It's, it's a big thing for your company. And I think it's the uh, accumulating, accumulation of, of everybody doing their piece will you know, get that compound effect of, of, of having an end result. So really nice to talk to you. Um, would you like to just mention where uh, people or our listeners could uh, see some of, some of your, your uh, beautiful products? Yeah, uh, we've got products all over the place, um, certainly all around the UK, everywhere uh, from Scotland to Ireland to uh, Cornwall. So you, you'll find them on street corners all over the place. But if you want to see them virtually, obviously, Vestra.com, you can find out a lot more about what we do. This is Constructive Voice. Philip Steele, Future Technologies Evangelist at Optimus Energy. Now, energy is a big thing that's come up a lot of times with the people I've been speaking to here at Footprint Plus. 
it is the the bit that uh, a lot of people say is the the big challenge in construction to build those homes and other buildings that are sustainable and are uh, net zero. How does Octopus help? I think there's a few things that we do actually. So. I'm looking forward to when we get to the future home standard and homes become net zero and they're all electric. Now, the government has set targets of things like 600,000 heat pumps being installed a year by 2028. Um, we're at a cottage industry at the moment, something like 20 or 30,000 that get installed. We've invested uh, in a, uh, an R&D centre in Slough, a £10 million investment, where we are training 1,000 engineers a year to be able to install heat pumps on people's properties. Uh, because you know, a heat pump is a, it's an electrical generator. It generates energy. You know, we, we 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 perhaps think of our heating systems as consuming energy, but actually, a heat pump is an energy generator. For each kilowatt hour of electricity you put into it, you get three and a half to four, even five times the amount of heat energy out of it. That's actually really unusual if you think about it. You know, there are, there aren't many other technologies that have got that kind of efficiency gain that they can produce. Absolutely, and we, and we know that the government are very keen for heat pumps to be part of the future of our, of our homes and our other buildings. Um, in terms of the construction industry, uh, what sort of conversations are you having with developers about uh, these sort of solutions? One of the initiatives that I'm part of uh, with our, one of our parent investors, Octopus Investments, and another Octopus business called Octopus Real Estate, is something called the Green Homes Alliance. And that's the panel that we've put together where we're inviting property developers to come to us for a lower um, loan uh, interest rate if they are making homes to the latest, kind of uh, closest they can to the future home standards. So air source heat pumps, solar battery systems, um, electric vehicle charging points, um, next level of insulation, triple glazing windows and all the rest of it. So I mean, that's kind of something where several businesses have come together and said, Let's try and do something and incentivize property developers to be doing the right thing with these homes now rather than waiting until 2025 when the future home standard comes in. Now, obviously, we're in a situation where we're moving away from fossil fuels. We're moving away from our uh, coal-fired power plants and, and, and gas uh, generation as well. Um, are you confident in how energy production is, is, is going forward? Obviously, renewables is a big part of it, but there are some challenges there regarding storage and you know, the timing of, of, of when the wind blows and all the rest of it. But are you confident that, that things are moving in the right direction? You, you, you can read sometimes in the news that people are concerned, will the grid cope when we get to really intermittent distributed renewable production? But we're actually nearly there already. We're already at 40% of um, our energy being generated from wind and solar. And it's happening now. And the grid is coping just fine with that. But I think there's this technology that we're developing which will make that work well on the grid as well. So um, what I was presenting in this session today, I, I showed some graphs of nuclear generation. There's about half a dozen purple big circles on the map that show nuclear generation. That's really big, flat, stable generation gas. It's kind of like 20 or 30 big gas generators across the country. You get to wind and solar and there are hundreds and they're all small. And actually, as we're standing here in this marquee, we're watching the sun go over, it's nice and warm and it kind of gets cooler again. You can feel that intermittency. And actually, that's where the grid will need to be able to cope with that. So some of the technology that we're creating with smart tariffs, smart meter data and so on, intelligent devices like EV charging, um, how the heating systems work, how your own home battery system, you can start to see how you can sort of soak up and balance what generation is doing and how the grid is, is working. And we've, we've proven that technology now because we have 
hundreds of customers on the Intelligent Octopus tariff, on the Agile tariff, the Go and Go Faster tariff, the Tesla tariff, and so on. We were kind of inventing all these ways of engaging customers with the grid and how energy is generated. So I don't think it's going to be a problem. I think actually we are solving the problem faster than the problem will grow as more renewable energy gets built on the grid. And obviously the, the national grid we all know about and has been with us for, you know, for as long as I can remember. Certainly we've talked about the national grid. Are, are we going to see more uh, use of local grids, more use of off-grid solutions? I think we will. I, I think, you know, as you get to that kind of distributed renewable generation, we will see more local usage. And we really want to try and drive that. There's a, there's a few things we've done recently. So we have a tariff called the Fan Club. Uh, we own two wind generators, one in South Wales and one in North Yorkshire. And customers who live in the local postcode are getting a discount of either 20% because the wind is blowing or 50% when there's really strong wind. And actually what we've done is, is customers log into an app that we've provided to them and they can see all the data. They can see the speed of the wind's turbine, how fast it's going. They can see its generation output. They can see the wind speed itself as well, the orientation of which way it's facing, all the weather forecast information. We give customers that data. So they're kind of like really engaged and empowered and saying, ah, oh, that's my wind generator on the wind on the hill there. And I can see it's generating 450 kilowatts right now. And I'm getting my 50% discount in this half hour. And I'm going to do the, the washing charge, the car or whatever. That's local energy working. It's brilliant. Oh, I mean, you know, that taps in perfectly with the, I mean, the British conversation about the weather is, is always ongoing. And if you can save money at the same time, you tapped into two brilliant things there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, suddenly we love the weather. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, I mean, this has been a, a great three days here at Footprint Plus. For you, what, what's your big sort of takeaway? Actually, what I really like walking around the show is just seeing all of the property developers. And there is, you know, I, I'm, I'm in an energy industry, so I'm looking at the efficiency of the energy that's used, how energy is used, charge cars, electric. But actually, it's really interesting to see all the other things that the property developers are doing. All the building materials, the methods, everything else that makes a net zero home, which, which I perhaps kind of don't necessarily look at and, and are fully aware of. So that's what I like about this show, because it is more about that than just the energy. And uh, where can people find out more about Octopus? Straightforward on our website, octopus.energy, it's there. And actually find me on Twitter, agile underscore Phil. I'm active on Twitter uh, and I'll respond to all sorts of Twitter queries, messages and so on. So find us in those two places. This is Constructive Voices. And that's all for this episode of Constructive Voices. Please take a moment to share it with others who may find it interesting. Follow or subscribe to get the latest episodes automatically on your favourite podcast app and rate and review the podcast if you can. You can also listen to the latest episode by saying, Alexa, play Constructive Voices podcast. Here's Constructive Voices. Here's the latest episode. And on our website where there's lots more information too. That's constructive-voices.com. Don't forget the dash. Until next time, thanks for listening. You're really helping us build something. Mm-hmm.